Hey all, good to be with you Tuesday evening. The studio's falling apart without Knox here. Pastor Toby's not here. It's just me and Keith running the uh, the ham. The, you know, the Saint Asylum. Yeah. Inmates. But we a lot of changes happening, which is why you got to join the club. Because I mean, our club members, you're our army, you're our help, you're our support. So thank you for joining us, joining the club, and staying with us for all these years. We appreciate that. Also, something new that that's that's changing is we have a a new sponsor. We love new sponsors, new sponsors, especially publishers. Reformation Heritage Book. Oh, but wait, before I get there, we got a great interview coming up on the religion of American greatness um, by Dr. Paul Miller. What's wrong with Christian nationalism? I wish I had the RC Sproul button. What's wrong with with you people? people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But first, Reformation Heritage Books is a publisher and bookseller. You need to be quiet while I'm reading our new sponsor here. Whose mission is to equip the saints to serve Christ and his church through biblical, experiential, and practical resources. RHB. Reading material is God-glorifying in accord with scriptures and historic Reformed creeds. We love Reformed creeds for the promotion and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each book we publish or sell, whether from the Puritans or modern-day authors, subscribes to the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Door. Man, this ad is written by a Puritan, I guarantee it. You're like, you know, maybe Baxter wrote this ad or maybe Thomas Watson somewhere. Uh, it's and, not Owen. And the Westminster Standards. Don't forget about that. Find more at heritagebooks.org, heritagebooks.org. Um, make sure you guys check out our new sponsor there. They got some great, great books, and we'll be doing some unboxing here coming up on the show later. Now, I'm going to drop you into our fantastic interview. We had a lot of fun. There's a little sparring that happened with uh, Dr. Paul Miller on the religion of American greatness. He just needs to become a theonomist. Pray for Dr. Miller. It's a good little beat for this segment. We're going to bring out... <laughs> I was just going to flow with it. I was going to start flowing with it. Just it. And then I, I broke the flow. So, hey, we got, we got a great interview coming up with Dr. Paul Miller on uh, the religion of American greatness. Yes, but before we get there first, folks, our upcoming Fight, Laugh, Feast conference is just two months away two months 60 days in knoxville tennessee october 6th to the 8th don't miss baron psalms our amazing lineup of speakers which include george gilder excited to have him out there pastor jared longshore pastor wilson dr ben merkel pastor toby sumter and more also don't miss our awesome vendors meeting new friends and and stuff for the kids like jumpy castles we like to do that kind of stuff and, and maybe a presbyterian baptism for one of the babies in there somewhere also did you know you can save money by signing up for club membership? So go to fightlifefeast.com, sign up for a club membership, and then register for the conference with that club discount. We can't wait to fellowship with you, sing psalms, celebrate God's goodness in Knoxville, Tennessee, October 6th through the 8th. Sign up now. Don't wait. It's gonna, it's, the tickets are going fast. I mean, it's crazy. It's like right, right off the Blow shelf. Or do, do, they, do they go off the shelf? Is that what it is? Campus, campus Preacher is going to be there, right? You coming? I plan to be there. Okay. Our guest, Dr. Paul Miller, uh, wrote uh, The Religion of American Greatness as a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He serves as co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration in the MSFS program. He's an, also a senior fellow with the Scow, ooh, Scowcroft. Ooh, I'm sorry if I'm botching that, Dr. Miller. You can correct me here in a minute. Uh, Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and and a research fellow with the Ethics and Liberty Commission. Dr. Miller previously served in the Army, including a tour in Afghanistan. Wow. 
as an analyst with the CIA and a director for Afghan Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. Dr. Miller, uh, thank you for coming on Cross Politics. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So you actually, you were in the CIA? <laughs> uh, I, I served as an analyst uh, for the CIA He's for a number of years yeah. uh, in the years after 9-11. That's right. Okay. All right. Do, what do you think of the uh, FBI Trump uh, thing that happened yesterday? <laughs> I know this wasn't our interview, but now, now I'm curious. Now you got me really curious. <laughs> got, you got quite the... Quite the pedigree. So. Yeah, so you got to answer. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm not a lawyer, and uh, yeah. so I can't claim to speak with expertise in this stuff. Look, there's ongoing investigations. They got to go where the uh, evidence or the um, uh, suspicion of evidence leads, and if the FBI thinks they got, apparently, I read somewhere this is not actually connected to the whole January sixth stuff. Yeah, it's connected yeah. more to like archives, was he mishandling yeah. classified information. Mm -hmm. There's an irony there. If you remember way back in 2016, there was some criticism about Hillary Clinton and her mishandling of classified yes. information. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. come full circle, maybe. She, yeah. she bleached her server. So let, let's get to the book. Let's get, we could probably go all down rabbit trails that way. Let's get to the book. Why, why did you write uh, this book, The Religion of American Greatness? I mean, I think being from D.C. maybe explained some of that to us already. So back in, so I, I look, I, I grew up as a uh, part of the religious right, right? I'm a I'm happy to call myself conservative, both politically and theologically. Uh, I'm a Christian, and I was uh, happy to vote Republican my whole life. But I kind of looked around in 2016 and felt like I no longer understood the movement that I that I had been part of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, as I cast around for that, I, I realized that the movement seemed actually not to be conservative very much anymore. Um, and the, another word was uh, appropriate, and that was uh, the word of nationalism. And so I kind of did a lot of reading, a lot of research on what this meant. Uh, and uh, that's why I came up with this book. Uh, it was a description a kind of a of what I found when I read a lot more about American history, American politics and political theory. Uh, again, I think I'm still conservative, but I mean that in a in a way that people meant it before 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So would you mind just make uh, one of the challenges in this discussion is obviously a lot of definitions and all that sort of jazz. So in, in your kind of you what would be like conservatism what are you looking to conserve and yeah. that sort of that sort of aspect of things yeah so from the 1950s all the way up until about 2016 that word meant a belief in limited government right kind of respecting jurisdictional boundaries uh aiming to keep the state relatively small belief in lower taxes and less regulation maximum individual liberty really allowing a thousand flowers to bloom letting people kind of live their lives um, even if you disagree with their choices, even if they're living wrong, uh, you still let people have have their liberty. Um, sometimes you, that that got also uh, connected to social conservatism, mm -hmm. to a, a belief in sort of traditional family structures and and traditional morality, and then the sort of a, a national security conservatism, belief in a strong military and a strong presence on the world stage. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the the Reagan fusion, right? Uh, and uh, it worked pretty well for Reagan, and it worked pretty well, I think, um, for a, a good long era. I know it's pretty unfashionable these days, but I actually think quite a lot of it had had quite a lot to commend itself. Mm -hmm. You had uh, two chapters in your book. Uh, one was the case for Christian nationalism, and one was the case against Christian nationalism. Before you kind of maybe get there, um, why, why don't you just, again, like what Keith was asking, you know, why, why don't you just define what Christian nationalism is and then let's let's talk what you know kind of case for and against it 
Well, as the advocates define, I'm and I'm trying to not like create a definition and foist it onto people. I really tried to listen to what its advocates were saying. Mm -hmm. So I review a whole bunch of books by guys who write books called The Case for Nationalism and The Virtue of Nationalism. And I really read those books carefully. And what they seem to argue is that number one, America is defined by a Christian cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we were stamped this way at the beginning. We've always been this way. I think it's a historical statement, There's a lot of truth there. Then they also argue, we have to stay that way in order to remain truly us. That the hardcore, the essence of being an American is wrapped up with his Christian cultural identity. I might actually disagree a little bit with that because I think our identity is a bit more wrapped up with the creed of equality and liberty more than the culture. But then the third movement they make, I think is the one where I disagree the strongest. They seem pretty comfortable using the government to enforce a Christian cultural heritage and to say at the you know as a point of public policy that they're gonna they're gonna say this is who we are as a country this is our culture this is officially who we are uh, and if you're not this you're not truly American and they want to use immigration policy mm -hmm. education policy uh, and uh, and other things to kind of hold up an official template of our national culture. And as a conservative, I just don't think government has a role in saying who we are. I mm -hmm. think that you and I get to decide that in our daily lives and in all the choices we get to make. And we're all American citizens. We all get to make that choice equally. Uh, and if somebody is of a different culture, but they're still an American citizen and they still agree with the Constitution and the Declaration, mm -hmm. they're still an American, what their cultural background is. Mm -hmm. You know, we am... Uh there both the pro and the con uh, yeah th thank you um you know we um as a show we started in 2016 um actually i think it was like september 2016 two months before trump got elected um none of none of us uh, uh none of the hosts on the show actually voted for trump in 2016 but in 2020 we um i, I know i did i actually I, I don't know if the other hosts get, did in 2020, I couldn't I couldn't vote for Trump in 2016 because I couldn't trust him. I didn't, you know, he was pro-choice in 1997 and then was pro-life. All of a sudden, I, I had no reason. I'm like, and, and I did the opposite. I voted for him in 16. I did not in 20. Did you? So, wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, kind of watching Trump in all, you know, I think it was it um, uh, who who used the analogy that Trump was like chemo chemo chemotherapy. You remember remember that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So somebody I interviewed talked about, yeah, uh, removing cancer with infected instruments. That's and right. Trump was the infected yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we had him on the show. I can't even remember his name now, but, um, uh, you know, so, so maybe tie in kind of, you know, this concept of Christian nationalism with what your thoughts on Trump and evangelicalism in this last four years. Yeah. So I, I'm happy to answer that question. There's only one chapter in the book about Trump. I kind of didn't want to write yet one more book about there's a thousand books about Trump out there. Yeah. I wanted to write something that kind of zoomed out mm -hmm. and kind of gave a bigger picture of, of big macro political and cultural trends okay. for decades, even centuries before Trump. And, and I think this stuff will outlast Trump himself, whether he runs in 24 or not. I think this nationalism will definitely still be around. Okay. Right. So back in 2016, Trump campaign, if you listen to his rhetoric, he was very specific. He campaigned to Christians. He, he said, look, Christians power has been taken away and I'm going to restore your power. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was, it wasn't about values. He didn't say, I'm going to respect your values. He said power. He said, I will restore mm -hmm. Christian power in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very 
blatant pitch for Christian power. I think that's a, that's a pitch for Christian nationalism. Whatever Trump himself believes, I think he understood he had his finger on the pulse of the right, mm-hmm. and he understood that would be a very powerful message. Right. And and 81% of white evangelicals resonated with that, of self-identified voting mm-hmm. evangelicals voted for him. Uh, so I, I think it's fair to say that the political right has become nationalist, Mm-hmm. Even more so under the age of Trump, because he has been a voice for this. He's brought it out. I, to be clear, I think nationalism has been in American political life forever. It's never not been here. But Trump has really brought it to the fore. Mm-hmm. He's given it a voice. Mm-hmm. He's made it more explicit. And I think people are, uh, they feel there's a felt permission mm-hmm. to to emulate Trump in that respect and to uh, advocate for this message yeah. uh, in, in a way that wasn't true before. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I felt like I like I'm sure it was around, but I broadly did not hear the term nationalism until late 2015, 2016. It seemed to kind of gain yeah. momentum. So I, I do campus ministry and even interacting with college Republicans, hmm. uh, the difference between say pre-16 Trump era and post-16 Trump era. And it's and it's kind of waffled again, but there was a brief period there in 16 where I would travel around. You had a you had a just kind of the the, the growing Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, which was kind of feeding right. it a little bit. That's you right. had Trump. And so, yeah, yeah, I would go to these campuses and they, they'd want to build like Trump walls. So everything was kind of this uh, re- reactionary to the left. And it was like, hey, let's build a Trump yeah. wall. This will trigger everybody on campus yeah. and get everybody worked up. But prior to that, I, I felt like I rarely heard the term nationalism and Trump definitely gave it an approval and uh, kind of common parlance. He did in October 2018. He publicly embraced the label. He said, "Yeah, that's what I am. I'm a nationalist." Hmm. Uh, he said nationalist. He didn't say Christian nationalist, but but that term has become more pronounced since since last year. And uh, was just two weeks ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene embraced the idea of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. So it's very much out there. It's not a you know I I didn't make this stuff up. I read the books by the people by Samuel mm-hmm. Huntington, Yoram Hazoni, Rich Lowry, who. Yeah. advocate for this stuff, Yeah, read the books, and I said, look, I, I'm not sure this is actually the best way for Christians to engage in politics. Yeah, we, yeah. Had, we had Harzani on the, on the show, actually. Um, you know, so, Dr. Miller, it seems like your conclusion is you would prefer some sort of uh, classical liberalism, or as um, you also said, uh, use the term, uh, you know, some sort of Christian republicanism, kind of equating the terminology, it seemed like, to me in the book. Um, yeah. why, do you, why do you think classical liberalism is kind of the relief valve or the or the conclusion for how our country should be functioning as a as a nation. I think it's the political equivalent of the golden rule, right? If we're going to treat uh, you know love um, do unto others as they would have you if you have that, do unto you, uh, <laughs> you know the political uh, the political equivalent of that is to let everybody kind of. Let them have their liberty. They let me have my liberty, right? Uh, you expect them to live under the rule of law. I live under the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want to institutionalize the golden rule in some kind of political structure, it's going to look a lot like democracy of some sort with some kind of guarantees and rights for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't want to choose to live under any other kind of regime. And I wouldn't want to choose for anybody else to have to live under any other kind of regime either. I think that uh, it's... Um, you know, one person has described democracy as the best technology for avoiding civil war. What, what he means is we're never going to agree on on everything. We're never going to agree on the good life. There's always going to be fundamental disagreements, me and my neighbor. We're going to disagree about stuff. Mm-hmm. We've got to live together. Mm-hmm. So what's the way to live together in peace despite our disagreements? Well, I think the answer is going to look a lot like democracy plus rights. That's how you live together with people who disagree on the fundamental nature of the good. Yeah, well, these things, people on the right. Sorry. 
you mentioned your Hazoni. Other people on, on the right, they no longer want to accept disagreement. They look at the other side, mm-hmm. the progressive left, and there's this uh, anti-progressivism that has taken on, it's, it's almost become a political crusade mm-hmm. where they want to eliminate progressivism as a force in American life. And look, I'm not a progressive. I disagree with the progressive left, but I think it is crazy to think we will eliminate them from American political life. That will not happen. And any kind of political agenda you have to just drive them out of the public square is dangerous. That, I think, is the message of my book. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think one of the, the difficulties in, uh, I, I knew I was hosting starting yesterday, so I only was able to read a little bit of your book. I wasn't able to get everything. But I, as I started to delve into it, yeah. I didn't like, prepare I, him well. He, I started to get into like, uh, my, my problem is I have this infinite regress. I got to read everything you read. So like hunting the class of civilizations, everything else. I feel like, oh, I got to I gotta start delving into all this. I've, I've read uh, Urim's work and stuff like that. But I, I think the difficulty I'm having, so like, you know, if I put myself in my shoes, I see the outworking, say of, say, classical liberalism 100 years ago. You had a broad... Not, not, we were never a homogeneous culture, but you had a you had a much more commonality of who we were, what our identity is, and those sorts of things. And so I, you kind of felt like there was a public sphere that was neutral is kind of the wrong word, but it was almost neutral. You know what I mean? We could all show up. We kind of had these disagreements. Uh, but now, like, for example, we were interviewing somebody yesterday who in Montana – he was part of a, you know, he went, they had some sort of like, hey, let's address the LGBT in our community sort of thing. And so uh, because he posted that publicly, he was suddenly limited and he's been brought up on some sort of charges in his- With a realtor associate. He's yeah. a realtor and a pastor. Yeah, a realtor and a pastor. And so th- th- he's now been limited in his ability to practice real estate because he's now violated uh, the norms of of that. So, so what I'm looking at broadly, because there's a sense which- I, I agree and disagree with you. And I'm trying to get at like the, the, this idea that we can have this neutral realm that somehow my rights as a Christian with LGBT, with Muslim, you know what I mean? This, this idea of pluralism that we can all really all live in the same space. I almost feel like you can't and something's going to arise and kind of, for lack of a better word, maybe be supreme, if that makes sense. And so once that supremacy, be it the Enlightenment, be it classical liberalism, something's going to be supreme in the public sphere that we're all kind of bowing down to. So if you think of like the coexist bumper sticker, uh, the, the nature of that bumper sticker is, hey, everybody submit to democracy, and and that's actually standing up over the coexist. Does, does the nature of what I'm inquiring make sense? Because I'm, I'm trying to get at something's going to be supreme in our culture and obviously, even like you're kind of suggested the golden rule, I want it to be Christianity. I feel like that's a reasonable thing because Jesus is Lord. So how do we kind of tie that out, if that makes sense, hopefully? Yeah, I mean, so the philosophical question you're asking is, do we need cultural commonality for democracy to work, or does pluralism undermine this whole project? And that's a very complicated debate. I want to acknowledge that there are some points of tension uh, between I think religious liberty and some some of the LGBTQ agenda. I think that's a true statement. But to the extent that's true, we're winning. Look at the last 20 years of uh, First Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, religious freedom is more well established in American constitutional law than basically ever before in American history. So we don't have to be afraid of developments in law right now. Uh, the principled case for religious freedom, not for Christian nationalism, but for religious freedom is winning. And we're winning under the older conservative framework, not the new Christian nationalist framework. So I think that it actually vindicates the idea of classical liberalism or civic republicanism, whatever you want to call it, 
because our religious liberty is being protected. Uh, you know, and, I, and I'll say again, the last 20 years of religious freedom, jurisprudence kind of bears that out. I, I'm not answering your broader, deeper question because we need longer than 22 minutes yeah, to answer that question that's, about that's totally fair. social solidarity. I, I will point out that democracy does work in all kinds of cultural uh, uh, backgrounds. And there I got a section in chapter four where I kind of do a tour of the horizon of democracy around the world, just kind of showing the data that democracy works. It doesn't require a Western context, doesn't require a Christian context. It works in lots of non-Western, non-Christian societies. And by the way, pluralistic societies as well. In fact, democracy can sometimes be the best answer to pluralism because there's no other way for pluralistic cultures to live together peacefully. In in your book, when you stated kind of your your conclusion is you know uh, I'd like to see kind of you know classical li- liberalism return. You you follow up with this. You say, what if the people of San Francisco wanted to defund the police and turn their city into a green, eco communist pot smoking drag queen dancing hippie utopia? And then you say, what if Texas? Um, well, I'm from Texas, by the way. What if? <laughs> so this this was a good I, sentence. I, I lived there. I lived there for four years. Yeah. <laughs> what if Texas wanted to abolish most bureaucracies, regulations, and taxes, and turn their state into the world's most well-armed anarcho-libertarian paradise? Why should I care? And why should I stop them? And and I I, I can't but think you know, I, my mind immediately goes back to San Francisco. I think you should care because you want to love your neighbor. I think you should care because what if they legalized, you know, pedophilia? You, you know, there is a, um, there is a, that kind of neutrality that you're arguing for will get San Francisco into pedophilia and get Texas into, you know, anarchism. I don't want either of those. And I care because I love my neighbor. Yeah. So if I lived in San Francisco, my beliefs would definitely affect how I voted in local, you know, ballot initiatives. But I don't. I live in Virginia and I vote in Virginia according to my beliefs here. I'm a big proponent of the devolution of power, uh, yeah, of letting 100%. a thousand flowers bloom. Exactly. And Augustine's got this thing in the city of God where he says something like, uh, you know, if, um, if, 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 if we were perfect, uh, there would be as many kingdoms in the world as there are houses in a city and every kingdom would be small. You know, his point is, why can't we all just kind of be self-governed and live in uh, small communities and govern ourselves? It's only problems that cause us to amalgamate in larger polities. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Mm. I'd love to see greater devolution. It's a little off topic, but, you know, it, it does get to the point. It's okay if people in San Francisco choose to live wrong. It doesn't actually hurt me or my family. But is it okay now, for I, them to have it, it, pedophilia legalized? It, there's a line and the civil rights movement taught us that there's a line where the, the federal government has to step in to protect fundamental civil liberties, right? Uh, we're not going to allow some place to vote to legalize murder, obviously. Um, but I want to draw that have, line as far back have, as possible. We have actually with abortion. What we've done with abortion now is return it to the States, right? Uh, with the Dobbs decision, it's now return that to uh, to, to the 50 states and to the elected legislatures to make laws about that. So we are, that's so a, we are voting to legalize murder. <laughs> compared to where we were a month ago, it's, it's, it's better, right? Wouldn't you agree that the Dobbs decision is an improvement on where we were? Yeah, but that's not what I'm arguing with you. I'm, I agree with you. The Dobbs um, decision was a, tro- was, was a victory for the pro-life movement. I agree with you on right. that. But what, yeah. what we're arguing is, is does, can classical liberalism basically hold up? When, when I want to argue, um, I'm against the Trumpian form of Christian nationalism, 
but I'm I'm definitely for Jesus is Lord over San Francisco and Jesus is Lord over Texas, and they should follow Jesus. And so if they yeah. if they make abortion illegal, well, I want to love my neighbor and say, no, you're wrong. But based on what I'm seeing, you put forward in your conclusion is that what well, well, it's the why should I care if San Francisco wants to legalize abortion or pedophilia? Why should I care? Uh, when you want to love your neighbor by bringing them the blessings of Jesus's rule, are you going to force it on them at the point of the government, or are you going to do it voluntarily through preaching, evangelism, uh, civic engagement, serving your neighbors? Do you see the difference there? Yeah. Well, I actually think uh, Jesus said, "My kingdom." Yeah. So I think it, it, I guess my my application would it'd be kind of be twofold. Sometimes that you know if I. I lived in New York City for a little bit. Depending on how big the guy was, you see a guy attack somebody. I might hop in. You know what I mean? So, so it's a little, it's a little bit of both. It's a little. Bit, I guess uh, you know we're still at the place of a little bit of a both end, where the difficulty is we, we there's going to be power in society, and someone in society is going to exercise power. Um, within that, obviously, I would I want just laws in power. Um, so, and I want my policemen to be just and stuff like that. And and, and so the challenge. And I so, agree with everything you've said so far. Yeah. yeah. So, so the challenge becomes, yeah, yeah. like is, is obviously the, 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 you know, how do we get there? I guess is, is the debate. Uh, do we get there kind of um, almost, I, I wouldn't say you're a libertarian, but there's a strand that's uh, sounds libertarian ish on approaching our neighbor. Um, whereas we might be a little more comfortable with the strand of, yeah, that's it's the government's by nature is power. Uh, Romans 13 calls them ministers of wrath, and so I would call on them to carry out your ministry. You're you're a minister of wrath. You're not a minister of grace or mercy or kindness. So San Francisco, carry out your wrath on the evildoers. Uh, would, would you affirm that, disagree with that? Uh, I would affirm, I think, what you just said. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. Let me turn the tables here. How do you feel about school prayer in public schools by public employees? Do you think that there ought to be Prayers in public schools by teachers. Well, I don't think there should be public schools. <laughs> the uh, I, I would not. <laughs> that I would, would be that would be my answer. Well, I, I would not. I would not. I would not be bothered. I would not be bothered by uh, public prayer, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. That if they began the school day, um, that I, I would. I would say the First Amendment. I believe was to bind the federal government. The states were able to operate. So, for example, going back to your why should I care what San Francisco? Kind of like if here in Idaho we wanted the Christian state, and so therefore. What that partially looked like is our uh, teachers pray before school and they say in Jesus' name, and I would I would have no qualms with that. Yeah, and, and see, there's maybe a good illustration of where we differ. I think it's uh, bad for the government to step into that space and assume a teaching function that actually belongs to the church. I think it's bad for Christians to allow such a close relationship between the church uh, and the state to blur those jurisdictional boundaries. As a good Baptist, I want to really make sure that there is a that we protect the sanctity of the church from interference by the government. And if you outsource our teaching role to the government through something like public school prayers, you don't know what they're going to say. You don't know if they're going to pray a theologically correct prayer. You don't know what they're going to teach the kids in school. I think it's quite dangerous to allow that kind of uh, arrangement to happen. I want to protect the church's sanctity that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And and I, I know, let me, I'll, I'll leave you the last word here, but I got one more question that I want you to have the last word. And then I know you got to, you got to go. We've already been past your time. Um, I would say there's a distinction. So the God, God gave the church a particular role in society. Their job is to declare the gospel, to preach the gospel to the nations, disciple the nations, administer the Lord's sacraments and enact church discipline. That'd be the basic duties of the church in our society. The government's job is to punish evildoers. 
and reward that which is good. You know, Romans 13, basic Romans 13 stuff. And so the, the government should absolutely reward um, uh, those for doing good, which praying to God is a good thing. Um, and so, but I don't think the government's job, the government's job is not to disciple the nations. The government's job is not to, um, uh, if someone doesn't convert to Christianity, um, you know, there's some sort of civil penalty there. You know, the government's job is to enact justice. That's Romans 13 and reward those who are doing good. And so I'd see a distinction between the church's role in this and the government's role in this. And I, but I do think that the government's laws should reflect God's law because God's law is the best law. Why would I, why would, you know, why would I not want God's law? to um, dictate or to be a, a source of, you know, common, common law to our, our law system, our legal system, because God's law is the best law. Right. So the language I'd use there is I'd talk about natural law, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, which is the same, the church fathers, the medieval mm-hmm. scholastics talk yes, about this. Um, yeah. And, and I would agree that government, all government in the world ought to govern in accordance with natural law. And I'm specific to say natural law because that is law that should, in principle, be accessible to people of any cultural background mm-hmm. across any time, across any culture. Um, we know that natural law reflects the character of God, who is the author of that natural law. But we also affirm that God has written that law onto the hearts even of the Gentiles, right, in Romans 1. Um, and so that's our point of commonality with those who do not share religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. That's why we're able to share a country, to share a polity together with non-Christians and live in peace with them. Uh, that's that's our best hope for the city of man that Augustine talked about. Um, and I hope that we can find that, that point of agreement so we can live in peace. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Paul Miller, for coming on Cross Politic and working it out with us. The religion of American greatness. What's wrong with Christian nationalism? Not God's law. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, check out the book on hey, Ivy Press and Amazon. It's all out there on Ivy Press and Amazon. Um, you know, Chocolate Knox is not here due to the closing as, as normal. I'm sorry. So just go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. Thank you. Home. It's where you build your legacy, where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. We are Chris Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country. Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first. Or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide. Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy. This is where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! (laughs) Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work.